What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the third episode of the Arnie Green Book Podcast. In this episode, we will be covering the 2020 election. This is the Arnie Green Book pre-election coverage. I'm your host, Langston Morris, and I have a very special guest with me today. Thank you so very much. I'm so happy to be here. All right, so that's our uh, one of the new members of the Arnie Green Book staff, Chris Jones. We're so excited to have him today, and uh, let's just get into it. So uh, the 2020 election is probably one of the most hotly contested elections. And, you know, this is one of the most important elections in all of history, uh, especially for the United States. Uh, it's at such a pivotal moment where we're, as you know, as both candidates say, battling for the soul of this nation at this point. And uh, this election, it has a lot going on, uh, especially since our new Green Book is a conversation from the Black perspective. Uh, we do definitely want to get into some of the things that each candidate has planned for Black America especially with the Black Lives Matter movement being so prevalent and the defund the police and even the abolish the police movement gaining so much traction over the past six months. We have, uh, Black America has a lot of stake in uh, what goes on during this election. So uh, let's just get into it. Uh, Chris, what are some of your ideas just around this election generally? You know, there's a lot going on. Just kind of what are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's going on? Yeah. Um, first off, thank you so very much for having me. I'm, I'm Glad to be back and I'm glad for another episode. Now, when you overall look at the election, obviously the thing is the election process is temporary, okay? The president is for the next four years. We need to number one, make sure that we have someone who is unifying this country. We need someone who is everybody's president, not just the people who voted for them as president, not just the 1%, not just the blah, blah, blah. We need everybody to have one united leader. We are Americans at the end of the day. I mean, this is still our country, you know, especially as being African-Americans. This is my country. This is the only place I've known, the only place I've lived in for a long duration of time. So we have to make sure that we put this country first and the well-being of this country first. And you can't do that unless the citizens and the inhabitants of that country are put forth on a presidential stage. And the last point, we have to plan for whatever happens, whether our candidate wins or our candidate loses, we've got to have a plan. We've got to make sure we can still make progress with whoever it is. Yeah, Chris, I think you made a really good point there at the end that um, no matter what happens in this election, we, we still have to push forward. You know, we still have to make the reforms we want to see happen. Uh, we can't let this election defeat us whichever way it goes. You know, whether we, whether we think one candidate is going to help us or not, I think it's important to know that no matter who wins this election, it is still important for us to go out and vote in our local elections. Those happen, you know, in between presidential elections. You know, those are, your, you know, your sheriff, you know. Your, your city council people, you know, your governor, very important, especially during the times of coronavirus, who your governor is, because they're making a lot of decisions in your life. You know, Joe Biden and Donald Trump's not deciding whether your state's open during, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. You know, that's, that's not federal, that's state level. So, you know, all these different things are very important to remember, uh, especially, you know, during this election time, it's time to, you know, make progress regardless of what happens. Um, so let's, let's get into some of these uh, ideas that each candidate has about Black America and just America in general. So uh, let's start with Joe Biden and his Lift Every Voice plan. So Joe Biden's Lift Every Voice plan is essentially the beginning of the plan is surrounded around the coronavirus pandemic that has disproportionately uh, affected communities of color, especially the Black community. The Black community has been hit hardest by the uh, by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, more deaths, you know, makes up more of the essential working force. You know, uh, Black America has really been struggling through the coronavirus pandemic. And that's something that Joe Biden's plan emphasizes. He wants to make sure that Black businesses are staying open. He wants to make sure that Black people can have access to all of these, you know, equal health care, adequate, you know, adequate health care throughout this whole pandemic. Uh, he also focuses on tackling systemic racism. Uh, he wants to uh, reauthorize the Voting Act, the Voting Rights Act, I'm sorry. Uh, he also really wants to focus more on HBCUs 
as well as the Fair Housing Act, which is something that I think I think personally is very important. Uh, equal access to housing. He his plan is essentially to make education uh, more accessible, advance economic opportunity, uh, make deep investments into the health disparities of Black America, uh, strengthening America, America's commitment to justice by making social justice and uh, criminal justice reforms, uh, and making the right to vote more equal, which has been something that in the past four years has been a little bit more difficult with, you know, mass purges on voter rolls, difficulty with for a lot of Black Americans with voting, uh, especially, you know, the, the claims of the Trump administration that there's massive voter fraud, which are simply untrue, but those claims have made it very difficult for many Black people to vote. Um, and just addressing environmental justice, which is something I personally am very invested in, because no matter what happens, we still all have to have a planet, you know? Uh, global warming is getting worse and worse by the day, and you know environmental racism has allowed global warming for their has allowed global warming to disproportionately again affect communities of color, especially black communities who don't have access to green spaces like white communities do. So the Biden plan is fairly comprehensive; it covers a lot. Um, if you want to go read the whole plan, it's on Joe Biden's website. But essentially, it's about getting black people healthy, uh, more educated, and uh, more well compensated. So, uh, Chris, I would I would love to hear your takes on kind of what Biden's plans are. Thank you. That was a fantastic rundown. Now, looking at Biden's plan, what I'm looking at is most of the key priorities of Biden's plan. So he's looking to combat the coronavirus, but in a different way than Trump and other politicians have. He's trying to supply equity within Black businesses. Ninety percent of Black businesses were forced into a shutdown or some form of re-business modeling throughout this pandemic. Ninety percent, that is a huge percent of this. And to build a community, you know, obviously you need stimulus support from the government. You need these things to help build a community, but you need sustainability. When you look at Biden's plan from an economic standpoint on helping Black people with the coronavirus, he's trying to basically make sure that these businesses have a fighting chance on their own. Now, they will be insured government assistance later on, but by giving them loans, certain tax breaks that can help them. If they have more than 50 employees, they get a tax break. Raising employment, getting people back in the workforce. These things help generate and push the economy forward because when Black business fails, business fails. That's the truth of it all. We need to make sure that minority businesses and small mom and pop businesses per se are secured. Now he's also trying to make sure that they increase home ownership amongst minorities and things like that as well. A huge key is that is that 60% of Georgians are looking at facing eviction within the next three months if this thing doesn't clear up. That is huge for things, for example, example things like crime for you know taxation for things like that all of these things are massively affected by things like home ownership so when you make sure that black people and people of minority families get those breaks and get those loans and get the low interest rates so they can afford to not only have a home but home ownership of that property and of that land that within helps them save up more money to put their kids to college, to get a tutoring service, to pay for SAT tutors, whatever they need, or not even stuff like that, just simple luxuries. Because purchases drive this economy. This is a consumer-based economy. So from that standpoint, if you get more people of color and that market share spending more of that money, the economy is bound to go. But at the current state, with the coronavirus, it's so hard for any Black business to get a start that Biden is looking to create equity so they can sustain themselves. And another thing is about healthcare and affordable education for students and reduced student loan debt. This is huge, particularly for people within the 18 to 24 gap. A lot of people in this gap can't even afford to buy homes their credit is so bad. If you make a steady payment on a $200,000 student loan with a 5% interest, banks will not give you a mortgage. They won't do that. They'll see a huge debt hang over you and they'll say, we well, gotta make these payments to Cornell or NYU or whatever, or great school you went to. 
how are you going to find ways to pay us back? It's as simple as that, which is really, really scary. And unfortunately, the truth is, if it affects people, it affects Black people worse. So whatever the rate of the student loans are, you've got to realistically enhance that for Black students. And it's things like what Biden is talking about with reducing student loan care. If you're someone who was directly impacted by the coronavirus and lost their job, suspending student loan and mortgage payments, these things are crucial. You need to give people the opportunity to spend their money and to put their money into the economy. If you're paying a student loan payment for the next 30 years of your life, that's 30 years of your income taken out of the economy. By definition, it's going to shrink because there is simply not enough money in there. So looking over some of the key priorities of how Biden's going to tackle the coronavirus, I myself and am supportive of this. I see it as building way for building equity within the community and building something sustainable that will last outside of the coronavirus. Because, you know, this virus, no matter how long it lasts, no matter how long quarantine things last, it will not be here forever. 50 years from now, the coronavirus will not be here and is prevalent. We need to focus on the future. And as well as doing that, address the present. Uh, and Chris, you made some great points. And I think one of the, the big points you mentioned was college. Black college graduates with bachelor's degrees are less likely to find jobs than white people with bachelor's degrees. Same level of education and black people are still struggling to find those jobs. And now there are many people with bachelor's degrees that can't even find good jobs that will help them pay off their student loans. You know, the student loan crisis in America, is, I, think, I think it's adequately, I think we can adequately name it that, that it's a crisis. People are struggling to be able to pay for the education they went and earned. They worked those four or five or even however long you took to get that education and now are unable to get the work that that education is supposed to guarantee you. You know, that's, that's a crazy thing to think about that in America, you know, the idea that you go to high school, you know, you get a good, you know, go to college, get a good job, you know, buy a house, you know, blah, blah, blah. But for black America, that's simply not the, that's simply not the case anymore. A bachelor's degree may not get you into the door at whatever business, you know, it may not help you. And for Biden's plan to slash student loan debt and help students not even have to have that student loan debt in the first place is immensely helpful to Black America. And I think it's what one of the biggest issues in the Black community is, is inequitable access to different resources. Black people at almost every market have inequitable access. We don't have equal access to housing, not even just housing, housing and home ownership. You know, the rate of Black home ownership is nowhere near the rate of white home ownership. And white home ownership is one of the corner pieces of white wealth, because that's something now you can pass down to your kids. Now you're building generational wealth and black people haven't had access to that for so long. So the Biden plan does allow for black people to not just build personal wealth, but now we're building wealth generationally, which is one of the ways most people in America are making a lot of money is because they don't have to worry about a mortgage payment because they have their dad or mom's house. You know, now they have a rental property, perhaps, you know, all of these things that are allowing them to expand in the market. So I agree. I think Biden's plan does uh, cover a lot of the issues within Black America that have been things Black people have been wanting to see for a long time now. Some of these ideas would have been probably radical for President Obama to do in 2014. You know, the likelihood of everybody being able to get behind the idea that we're going to slash uh, student loan debt would have probably been insane in 2014 or whatever time uh, in which you want to think about his presidency. I mean, these are these are things that we can now look at. And I'm, I'm very glad we're in a space where we can really address these issues. Uh, so the Donald Trump plan, which has, you know, a lot of controversy surrounding it, especially this past week here. With so the platinum plan has great ideas as they float in the air. Yet, if you really get down to the nitty gritty of the, these ideas, they don't actually allow Black people to have that upward mobility that Black people have been looking for. So for example, I'll just go down to the pillars of the plan as uh, described by the Donald Trump website. 
uh, opportunity, security, prosperity, and fairness. Now, in in you know, in concept, these sound great. So, we'll, let's start with opportunity. By achieving historical employment levels for Black Americans, as well as increasing access to capital for new businesses, President Trump has been committed to ensuring all Black Americans can achieve the American dream. Security. By signing into law the celebrated First Step Act, President Trump has brought common sense criminal justice reform to the American people for the first time in decades, while ensuring that our streets and communities are safe for families and business owners. And then we'll go to the prosperity piece as the first president to provide long-term funding to historically black colleges and universities. The administration continues to seek immediate and generational advancement for black Americans. We'll go to the fairness pillar as demonstrated through his actions to initiate investments in opportunity zones, as well as address health disparities, wage gaps, and necessary education reforms. President Trump works every day to advance a fair and just America for the black community. So just kind of digging into those pillars, uh, Chris, let's, let's dive into those pillars a bit more. What do you, what are you feeling about these pillars? You know, we all know President Trump's track record on uh, Black America and kind of what, what's been going on so far uh, for Black people. So, Chris, let's just dive into some of these uh, pillars here. What are, you, what are you thinking about kind of Trump's plan from a surface level and kind of, you know, your, your, your specialty is in the economics, you know, you're, you're good with the market. So uh, I'd love for you to kind of dive in the, the real nitty gritty of Trump's plan and kind of what that really means for Black America, as opposed to just this kind of surface level concept. Yeah, I was about to say, if you guys know I was a finance major by now, I think the economic talk has definitely made that pretty clear. But um, yeah, getting into Trump's plan, um, off rip, it's a lot of fluff. It is. That's the truth. When you're looking at Trump's plan and some of the points he's laying out, his main focus is maintaining. He's not really focused on gaining an advancement of the people. For example, another thing is um, to maintain low unemployment rates for Black Americans as seen before the pandemic. Now, this is all coming from uh, Donald Trump's website, his personal campaign and registration website. When you look at statements like that, you look at the support that he offers to them and the things that he is pushing as well, it's not particularly about pushing the race and the community forward. It is about rebounding. Donald Trump has set his campaign around the fact of the coronavirus affecting Black people right now. He's not looking 10, 15, four years into the future for this administration. He's looking at what can we turn around for six months. So getting the unemployment rates back down to where they were, that is very important. Low unemployment is fantastic. But why is the reason for low unemployment? Due to the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic. We need to do these things. Policies that you enact today, they don't take foot tomorrow. They take foot four, five, six years from now. Because after the time builds up from there, you get to see the real results of these things. Donald Trump had the luxury of coming out of a president, Barack Obama, who inherited one of the worst economies that he'd ever seen before. The Obama administration policies were just starting to really take root and get some teeth around 2017, 2018. And those are the quote unquote golden years economically and the social region for the Trump administration. So the issue is that not only is Trump not looking for the longer term, he's offering sort of life support. He's not pushing this equity within here. What Donald Trump's plan reads to me as someone who reads the news and news inform is that basically he's saying, I can get you back to where we were, but that's it, nothing more. I can't get you more you know, student loan uh, relief plans. I can't get you more minority businesses. I can get you around the states because when he talks about opening 500,000 black businesses, 90% of black businesses have been shut down or closed by this. So what is the ratio of that looking like? You know, I mean, when, when you've almost been 100% wiped out, 500,000 per ratio of 300 million people in this country, that's still not a lot. That's still not enough capital within the community to make the changes we want to see happen. So other parts of the platinum plan that have been smaller is that he wants to push things like making Juneteenth a federal holiday. 
But when you have to look at this, you have to look at through the context that it was stated at. You know, when Donald Trump talks about, I did a very good thing, I made Juneteenth famous, basically he's not doing this in a sense to try to appease black people and gain black voters. He's doing this to appease his own base. Because at the end of the day, if a Donald Trump supporter can say, well, the president made Juneteenth legal, you know, that is a statement and that is a caulking clause that they're going to bring up to defend him as. So when he does these things for the community, he's not even particularly doing them for the benefit of the community. It's for the strengthening and nourishment of his own base to support him even more. Because he's not trying to convince me or you that he's not racist. He's trying to convince Thomas the coal miner in West Virginia that he's not racist because Thomas is voting for him. He doesn't care what we think. He's doing this all directed towards his base and things like this. For example, they're trying to get federal legislation against lynching and things like this. Huge amounts of Republicans have come forth to support this bill. Why do they come forth to support this bill? So they can use this as another talking clause. The same way that Donald Trump during his campaign says, well, I got the kids back in school, we reopened schools. He's using these things as talking points. These aren't concrete things that are meant to really uplift and support the community. They're meant as talking points and basically resume points on his brag sheet to bring up for this as well. Because yes, these things are still bad and need to be addressed. You know, Juneteenth, I would love for Juneteenth to be a national holiday. I think it deserves to be a federal holiday. I think that is completely in the next. But if you ask me, would I rather have that at the top of the plan or equity distribution for minority communities, student loan release? I'm taking those things first because those things affect the future. Juneteenth is a historical date for the entire world and needs to be remembered and celebrated. But it's in the past. We have to focus on building the community up. And especially from a disenfranchised point where we are with coronavirus right now, we got a lot of work to do. And every year, every election cycle, every election session that we don't have someone up there who potentially has the best thing for us, that's time we're not going to get back. So overall, looking at Donald Trump's plan, it does attempt to appease to some black voters. Keep in mind that he is currently trailing Biden 83% to 8, a 75-point margin on black voters as of um, um, October 30th. So he is still very much being killed in the minority race right there. So looking at it overall, it's still a lot of fluff. I don't see a lot of tangible action and I don't really see a lot of ways in which these things can be accomplished. Very nice talking points. I guess I can give him credit for that. But looking at this overall, I don't see a lot of way that you can make real logistical change within another four year span. Right. And, and let's get on to the most fun part of both presidents plans, healthcare. Healthcare is everyone's favorite uh, talking point, especially with the recent placement of Judge Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court. Uh, they now have a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Donald Trump's, we'll call it what it is, a rush job to get Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court, uh, now has opened up the floor for Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, as we'll refer to it, uh, to be repealed. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, almost universal support amongst folks who are well-educated about you know, its actual policies, but the Trump's administration's claims that premiums are going up and all these other unsubstantiated claims. So with the nomination of Judge Barrett uh, and her confirmation onto the Supreme Court, uh, the conservative majority now has the ability to overrule and uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is almost universally supported amongst minorities and uh, folks who are generally well-informed about what the Affordable Care Act does. Um, so the Affordable Care Act has been something that has been incredibly beneficial to Black America. And uh, Trump's attempt to repeal it would leave many uninsured, especially in the middle of a public health crisis with the coronavirus pandemic. So with, with all of these things in mind, especially knowing that Black communities 
are already disenfranchised when it comes to healthcare, which is why you see the, you know, the amount of black folks dying from this pandemic and black folks being unable to work and black folks be making up the majority of the working force of the essential working force during this pandemic. It seems a little untimely, well, you know, to say the least that uh, we're attempting to repeal protection for pre-existing conditions, which could, you know, range from many things, but black people, of course, are more prone to having pre-existing conditions as well. So all of these things, while Trump has the platinum plan, has all these ideas for black America, his real policies are the most likely to be harmful to black America. Uh, repealing Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, it would be incredibly harmful to black America, especially because many people ages 18 to 26 would lose coverage. People with pre-existing conditions could lose coverage. Folks who are on Medicare could be losing coverage. This, this, is, this is substantial because this could truly pass. The conservative majority of the bench could pass this into law. You know, we could have Donald Trump's no plan health care. You know, I think that's that's kind of a crazy part of the political process is that Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote and won the Electoral College, has now nominated judges to the Supreme Court that will make decisions for the rest of their lives or until they retire. You know, those judges are not going anywhere. You know, we can't vote them out. They're in. You know, and I think that's a, a kind of sticking point of democracy is that even when even when, you know, Donald Trump essentially loses the American populace because more people voted for Hillary Clinton, uh, he still gets to make decisions that affect, you know, all of us for the rest, for a majority of my life. Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh will be on that bench for a majority of my lifetime. And that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a hard thing to deal with. You know, what, what does our democracy look like when people are getting nominated for life, you know? Um, But to move on to um, kind of the election itself, um, electoral maps, and predictions are showing different figures. Um, battleground states are, you know, they're heating up. The closest are the races are drawing closer. And um, let's just kind of talk about the electoral map, kind of like what our predictions are for the election, kind of what the election is just looking like right now. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, so um, new things may have happened. You know, new predictions for new battleground states may come out. You know, within the next 24 to 48 hours. But um, let's kind of talk about the electoral map a little bit, uh, Chris. Let's let's kind of get into what are some things that we've we've seen already happen. Kind of what are some things that we we kind of expect. Kind of like what it, what's your what's your mindset going in looking at you know the map and looking at kind of like what the electoral college is looking like right now. Yeah, well, starting to go over the map, you're seeing a huge change in places really out in the Southwest, places like New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona. Those are a lot of the crucial states that are turning, places that are really, really being affected by things such as climate change that are going through economic depressions. For example, a city like Phoenix, a city like Phoenix would have a place that would have definitely have voted Trump and did vote Trump 2016. That was a red state. Arizona as a whole was a red state. And now you have places like lower places such as Tucson, Phoenix, and these places, they're starting to turn blue slowly and slowly and slowly. But you look in those areas, you see huge economic depression. You see real estate market crashes. You see people that are talking 75% of people in a county have not have health insurance now and don't have adequate medical care. I mean, these are serious things. In those states, you have things such as asthma is considered a pre-existing condition. I mean, think about this. You can have people literally who are fighting for their lives and just because they have asthma or a very, very small minor infraction to their health, they are now considered pre-existing conditions and can be cut at any given time. People are noticing this, you know, in other places. 
Georgia has now become a battleground state, which in all my years, I, I think I would have never even seen the possibility of Georgia going blue. Never. I, right. Agreed. It's, it's definitely something that is happening. Live, I mean, even to have the conversation of it be pushed that this state could go blue. And that is just showing that Trump is not really even playing to win. He's playing not to lose. He's fighting in states that he should have a firm grasp on. Places up in the Northeast, Vermont, these states have turned their back on him entirely. Rhode Island, New York, all these states that were sort of battleground and swing states this time, they're going fully right. I mean, they just, they don't, they don't care. They're just not involved at all with these Trump policies. And they're looking at things such as the affordable health care. They're looking at things like birth control. They're looking at things like mental rehabilitation centers. And with the reparation of the um, Affordable Health Care Act and other places of health care without a supplement plan or something better to insert in it, these things are all up for risk. These organizations such as Planned Parenthood that help people and assist people through things like childcare, mental and sexual trauma, these places are going to lose a lot of money. And that means a lot of people are going to have no option or no place to turn to. People are paying attention to this. They're waking up and they're starting to see what repealing places of healthcare that are crucial to minority communities can also have an effect for white people as well. Because the thing at the end of the day is we are still one country. We're supposed to be the United States of America. Now, how united we are is up for debate and mass discussion. But we are one country. And unless somebody plans on seceding anytime soon, we have to learn how to accommodate everybody's wants and needs into places that can help other people as well. You're starting to look at places like the Midwest, states such as Michigan, once again, becoming crucial, crucial battleground states. And you're also seeing stuff up in the Northwest as well. Portland, a place that had huge racial and mess in violence, they're a swing state now. It could go either way there. You have candidates flying to three, four states within a day to make speeches because you have to hit South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia on your stop in the Southeast now. Because if you don't, you're going to lose. You have to hit these states. You're looking at places now where the country is overall starting to take a huge shift. This election is being one of the most pivotal because this is the first one where people born after the year 2000 are having mass chances to vote. You're seeing huge liberal turnouts. You're seeing huge early voter turnouts. And you're seeing huge young turnouts. The percentages of those we don't know yet because obviously the election has concluded. But so far, I mean, they're breaking numbers and breaking records everywhere everything. So you're seeing a huge amount of people who care about this. Now, what reasons they care about it for to support Donald Trump or to support Joe Biden, that has yet to be proven. That will be proven November 3rd that night. But we are seeing a huge amount of Americans more than ever talk, discuss, and take action. Right. And I think one important thing to note is that voter turnout for early voting is already surpassing numbers for the whole election of 2016. You know, early voting in states like Georgia and Texas are already at 75% higher than voter turnout as a whole in 2016. You know, people this year are truly getting out to vote. And I think the youth vote has been something that has been entirely activated. Groups 18 to 24 have showed out in large numbers, majority for Joe Biden. You know, I don't think Trump has really attempted to activate the youth vote in that way. Joe Biden has made himself relatable to the youth. He said, I am your president for now. Joe Biden has gone on stage and said, look, I see myself as an interim president. I see myself as a pit stop from Donald Trump to a brighter future. And I think that Joe Biden, I think the youth resonated with that idea. I think young people are tired of 75-year-old white men playing politics with their lives. I know personally I am. So I think the youth vote has really become activated. Now, looking at the electoral map, things are getting, things are getting rough for Donald Trump. You know, states that, states that he won in 2016, like Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, 
are turning their backs on Trump and they're going lightly blue. You know, these are these are the light blue states on our electoral, you know, current electoral prediction map. Uh, these are states that are likely Democrat now. You know, Joe Biden is winning back states Obama won in 2012. You know, he's getting states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. He has a good chance in Ohio. He has a good chance at Iowa. All states that Donald Trump swept swept from Hillary Clinton, which won him the electoral map. He won the Great Lakes and he won the Southeast. He swept the Southeast and he got some of the Southwest as well. Now, looking at the map now, one of the biggest updates from this map, from, you know, the map of, you know, Donald Trump's 2016, his presidential path then to now is that these Southern battleground states like Texas, Georgia, and North Carolina, they're not just, they're not just ideal battleground states now. They're, they're not just in theory. These are real battleground states. Georgia has a true chance of going blue. Trump in some polls has a 1% margin. 2% margin, 3% margin. These are all tightly contested races. And in some, in some polls, Biden is winning by 3 4% in Georgia, in North Carolina. And there are some states where he's, you know, 1% neck and neck with Donald Trump, like Texas, which has one of the biggest electoral weights in the entire electoral college. You know, if, if, if Biden gets a few battleground states that Trump won, like Ohio and Florida that, Donald, that Barack Obama won in 2012, then I don't see, you know, this election, this election could go either way at this point, you know, the, the margins are looking kind of thin, you know, with, with early voter turnout, there's always a big sweep at the end. Uh, Republicans tend to do well. Uh, a lot, a lot of the big Republican wave comes in kind of at the end and surprises people, for example, why the polls look good for Hillary Clinton all the way up until election night. And then poof, you know, the election, election got in a sense swept out of, you know, a lot of Americans feet because they, they looked at the polls and they didn't see the idea that, Trump's voters were turned out for him, you know? I think now we're past the narrative that the polls determine everything. We have to understand that right now they could say Biden could be up by 10 points or have a 25-point margin. He could still lose, okay? We need people to still show up until November 3rd and until they shut that boot down for the next four years. We need that. Looking at the poll numbers and things like that, you're looking at states and places that were, you know, hotly contested areas that are now completely going blue you're seeing these huge divides within the nation. So when you look at this map, it's showing that the people are informed, but people, a lot of people are ready for some change. Now, what that change is, whether unfortunately another four years of Donald Trump or a new president, a lot of people are really, really looking for something new. They don't like how it is. And they feel like either Donald Trump can change it or Joe Biden can change it. But these numbers showing about the youth votes and the minority votes and people are turning out for this. This is serious. A lot of people are looking around the world right now and the only power they have is in a vote. That's it. They just, they got to do it. And to beat a system that is, in my opinion, just so corrupt as the electoral college, you got to have an overwhelming margin. You can't even make it close because if you want the electoral college to make a decision, I'm not betting on those guys. I'm not betting that they're going to make the right decision for me, you know, my extended family, my friends. I don't think they're going to make that decision. We have to make sure that our presence is felt in that poll room so that it's not felt in other places where we don't need it to be. We have to ensure the fact that what we do have control over, which is a vote for people who are 18 or older, is ensured. The polls are the only gateway to the future. That's all we have right now. Because right now we don't have an administration that cares about minorities. We don't have a Senate that cares about minorities. We don't have bipartisan things that can come together to. We have to earn those things and we earn them through exciting our privilege to vote. So these numbers are very, very promising and the battleground states are very, very contested. But my advice to anyone who has not voted or is considering it or waiting to last day, go now and go 
whenever you can and make sure that it is publicly enforced. We have to make sure that the public is aware that just because he's up five points one day does not mean he's going to be up five points the next day. This thing changes minute to minute, second to second, hour to hour. And 2016 was a great wake-up call because we have shown that this can be swept at any given time. The rug is not secure under our feet until November 4th, maybe. So the thing is that we have to make sure that while we can right now, before this gets held up in the Supreme Court and put into other people's hands who were appointed by one of the people running, we've got to make sure that we do everything we can now, which is also why it's very good to see these numbers. Right. And I think you brought up a good point about the Supreme Court. And we have people on Supreme Court now who worked on Bush v. Gore, you know, the decision on who really won the presidential election and whether certain votes were counted or not. You know, we have a president now who's appointed folks who have worked on that case. We have three judges, if I'm not mistaken, on the Supreme Court right now who were involved with the Bush v. Gore case. So now it's not about whether it's a close race or not. People need to show out in massive numbers if they don't want Donald Trump to be president. That's the simple fact of it. If you don't vote, your voice is not heard and you don't get to complain. If you, can't, if you did not vote and you are able to vote, you're eligible to vote, and you did not vote because of your own volition, you are unable to complain for the next four years. That's simple. If you don't like what Donald Trump does in the next four years and you didn't vote, you don't have the ability to complain because you had the ability to change things. If you are a Democrat in Georgia and you decide not to vote this year and you complain that Donald Trump won your state, then your voice might have helped change that. It doesn't matter what the polls say right now. The polls could change today saying Donald Trump could win. You know, the polls could change tomorrow saying, oh, Texas, Texas is officially likely to go red. You know, and that's a giant electoral sweep. You know, it doesn't matter what the polls say right now. It's about making sure you go out and vote for whatever candidate you think is going to do what's best for you and making sure your voice is heard. It's one of the only true powers we have as American citizens. And while I agree, I think Chris, you brought up a good point that the Electoral College is one of the most overt forms of voter suppression in America. You know, the, the person who gets more votes should win. I think the popular vote is essentially the only way to really tell who won the presidency. But, you know, we're stuck with the Electoral College for now. You know, maybe in 15, 20 years, we won't have it. But for now, right now, it's time to go make our voices heard. So one thing I want to, we want to touch on before we get out of here is election safety. Whatever happens after this election, you need to have a plan. This election is one of the most hotly contested of all time. You have alt-right groups claiming, you know, they're going to, you know, cause havoc in the streets. Uh, you know, you have white supremacist groups who Donald Trump told to stand back and stand by, you know, not denouncing them fully, uh, you know, those groups are standing by and they're ready for whatever happens, you know, so you need to stay safe, make sure that you have a plan after the election. Let's make sure we stay safe uh, and stay healthy, especially during this pandemic. And let's go out and make change. Kind of touching on some of the points that Langston just brought up, you know, we have to have a plan no matter what it is, whether you're a college student who's looking to go to medical school or a father providing for his kids, whatever the plan or, or you're 80 years old, you have to have a plan because this election process will only last at this time two more days and then we'll have some form of a verdict of who the president is. We have a president for the next four years. These policies are gonna last way longer than that. These Supreme Court justices are gonna last way, way longer than those policies. So the key is here, you have to plan. You also have to be informed. You have to know what's going on. If you have no idea what it is, if you never turn on TV or never have you know CNN notifications on your phone or not even use the internet as a resource, you can't make a plan. 
because you don't know what's going on. You got to be informed. And also, you got to make sure that you protect people out there. You know, you got to make sure that people are protected voting wise. You got to make sure they're protected economically. And as Black people and as a community, we have to protect each other. That's a huge thing. Community and reliance for these next couple months with the coronavirus worsening and the presidential election, all this change and uncertainty, we need to make sure the communities are rock solid to the core. And another thing is, whoever wins the presidency, they're listing off all these things, they're making all these promises hold them accountable. If Biden says he's going to do something, hold him accountable. If Trump says he's going to do something, hold him accountable. You hold these people accountable, you can do that in many different ways. You can do it through social media and through social action, but hold them accountable through voting for Senate selections, for voting for sheriff, for voting for district attorney. Hold them accountable through that. If they don't hold up to their promises throughout crime and police um, you know, reformation, get the district attorney out of there. Get the sheriff out of there. You can do these things. This is just one election. Now, yes, it is a very pivotal and crucial election. There's going to be election in six months. There are going to be midterm elections. We have to keep sure that these things do not slip to the back of the mind because that's how progress gets undone. Not when people stop working, but when people stop trying. And we've got to make sure the effort will always stay there for the communities. Right. And a, a final note I want to end on is vote, vote, vote. Don't just vote for your president vote for your sheriff, your district attorney, your city council people, you know, your local elections are what's really going to impact you. While the president may be important, and he may enact federal policies that will affect you in certain ways, like healthcare and the coronavirus pandemic, you know, what the plans are. However, at the end of the day, your governors, your senators, your state officials are what's going to really change your life day to day. That's it for me and us today on the Arnold Greenbook podcast. I'd love to thank my guest, Chris Jones. I'm glad he's back on the podcast. Can't wait to have him for our post-election coverage that we'll be doing after the election. Once we get results in, we'll talk about kind of what, you know, what next steps are, what we, you know, what we see as America's future, what kind of just has some reactions. And uh, that's it for us on this episode of the Arnold Green Book podcast. I would like to thank my guest, Chris Jones, for joining me today. Uh, I truly appreciate him being able to come and talk with us today. Uh, and remember, guys, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our new green book. Uh, make sure to go look at our podcast website, anchor.fm slash our new green book, and make sure to stay safe, stay healthy. And this has been the our new green book podcast. Thank you for listening. Folks. <laughs> we got to fight the power, baby. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power.